everyone. This is Zoe Midler, the host and moderator of Not a Rocking Chair Librarian podcast, and welcome to episode 29, Reflect, Pivot, Flex, featuring Len Bryan, Library Technical Systems Manager for Denver Public Schools. Len leads the district's technical services team in ensuring staff and patron access to an array of resources, including books, ebooks, databases, and a robust and patron-friendly OPAC. Len has worked as a district media specialist in Hillsborough School District in Oregon. He's also the former school program coordinator for the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. While in Texas, he was primarily responsible for implementing the TexQuest K-12 Digital Resources Program, and he was also responsible for the agency's involvement in school library standards and school librarian certification for over 1,200 school districts and 5.4 million students. He has served as a middle school and high school librarian, opening a 3,500 student high school in Round Rock Independent School District in Texas. As I do with most of my guests, I asked Lynn to share his library philosophy with me in advance of our interview, and this is what he shared. Quote, we are in the people business, and the people we serve should always be our top priority. At the core of every task is creating connections between people and information resources and between people and others. To do this well, we should put as much or more effort into curating relationships as we do in curating our resources, end quote. Len is an incredibly knowledgeable and passionate library and information professional. I was eager to chat with him about this past year in DPS. Specifically, I wanted to get an update on where DPS is with instruction, librarianship lessons learned over the past year, and what does advocacy look like for librarians coming off this pandemic year? And finally, I wanted to talk to him about this concept of a lost year. We hear this a lot regarding students, but I wanted to know if he felt there was a lost year for librarians as they were asked to take on additional roles and duties, and in some cases, cease library operations and activities altogether. To follow Len on social media and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode, including a list of folks Len recommends adding to your Twitter personal learning network, visit the Not A Rocking Chair Librarian Resource Companion, a Wakelet collection. If you have a Wakelet account, just search for Not A Rocking Chair Librarian and the collection should pop right up. Or go to tinyurl.com, that's all one word, tinyurl.com forward slash resource companion. That's all one word, resource companion. I'm going to say that again, tinyurl.com forward slash resource companion. And you can always follow me on Twitter at zmidler, at Z-M-I-D-L-E-R. Remember, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please take a second and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. All right. Let's hear from Len. Hey, Len. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I am just living the dream. <laughs> um, thanks so much for taking time out today to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Of course. I'm delighted. I love to talk. That's why I became a teacher. I love having a captive audience. <laughs> um, you know, I like to talk too, but I haven't thought about that as a motivation for going into... <laughs> librarianship and teaching. So I'll have to remember that one. Um, we were actually talking a little bit before we jumped on to the actual podcast. And I was trying to remember when we first met. And I think we decided it was at least three years ago. That um, sounds about, about right. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you present at uh, Denver Public Schools Librarian in Service. Um, and you were talking about uh, the work that you had started doing there with Destiny and data collection and uh, a ton of other things. And then we met again at um, University of Colorado's uh, librarians always get the K-12 or invite K-12 librarians to come together and talk about different topics. And this one was the information literacy one, right? Was that accurate? Yeah, yeah, that was, and they were in quick succession. I think the the in service mm -hmm. was October, and and the CU um, event was in November. So yeah, yeah, and we got to know each other pretty quickly. I believe you had a lot of questions about destiny <laughs> and, and using data and all that fun stuff. So yeah, yeah, you were be you're being kind. I was grilling you because at the time I was working for BBSD, and I know we wanted to switch over to destiny, and mm -hmm. so it was like, oh, I have somebody I can ask every single possible question. Um, and, you know, not ask the vendor and try to get that uh, in the trenches view. So you were very accommodating. Since then, I know you've gone on to um, do a lot of work in DPS, obviously. Um, and also you've been talking a lot and writing a lot. And so it's been a, kind of a, 
a goal of mine to get you on the podcast. So I'm really excited. And I, and I think this is like a great moment to talk to you because we're coming off an obviously unusual <laughs> set of circumstances. Just say it, just say it mildly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I am trying to be mild. Um, <laughs> so I just wanted to start with, can you kind of give us an update on where DPS is right now? Like with instruction, are you remote hybrid in person? Does it vary by grade level? And I know this is a really big question, but can sure. you kind of t- kind of briefly tell us where things are at? Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's been you know Denver Public Schools is a as a large urban district that serves serves a very diverse population. Um, you know we know that our economically challenged and our communities of color uh, folks have been hit the hardest with the COVID pandemic. You know in terms of just access to healthcare and job loss and and all the stuff that comes with that, right? So it's been a it's been a focus for our district to get back to in person as quickly and safely as possible. So most of our younger students um, are have have been in person for a long time. You know, uh, I don't know exactly when. You know, the 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 um, the bulk of our younger kiddos were back in the buildings, but. Um, our older, we just started really making a concerted effort to bring back some of our older students. And now that the uh, vaccine is available for students age 16 and older, uh, DPS just put out a call for, you know, any interested students, you know, we're facil- facilitating those older kiddos getting their vaccines, you know, quickly so that, you know, they can continue to return um, safely and, and feel better. Thing. Um, so, yeah, it, it kind of varies by, by age level. I've noticed the trend to where younger students are more likely to be in person and older students are more likely to choose a hybrid or remote model. Hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of stuff to unpack in that, but, but, but that's kind of the trend that I'm seeing so far. I'm just curious. Why do you, mm-hmm. why, why do you think there, I mean, we, we I mean, we yeah. hear so much about how, Oh, you know, the older kids who have been hybrid haven't maybe necessarily really liked it or they're missing out on something, but you're yeah. not necessarily seeing, I mean, you're not seeing that trend at least at a sign up level. So. Right. Yeah. Not- it's, it's a mixed bag. And, I, and and part of it is, you know, older students, uh, especially at the high school level, in my experience, crave aut- autonomy. And uh, I believe remote learning gives them a little bit more or gives them a lot more autonomy. You know, school has has historically been about control and command. We give bell schedules. We have dress codes. We tell you when to eat. We tell you when you have to ask permission to use the bathroom. You know, that kind of stuff as a as an adolescent or as a even a middle schooler, it can start to become grating on the nerves. And I think that that many students and of course, I'm not speaking for all of them, but many students want to continue the autonomy of going to school in their pajamas and, you know, choosing to turn off their cameras. And, you know, let's be honest, some some schools are not safe, for, especially for students of color, uh, LGBTQIA students. Uh, it could be an unsafe space. So, and I'm not saying DPS is unsafe, but, I'm, but a lot of secondary schools are. And we need to we need to dig into that. We need to examine, you know, why so many of our students are choosing to uh, continue in remote learning when they have the option to going back. And, you know, I, I don't have the answers. I just uh, I just notice things and I wonder about things. And I know that if I were in high school at this moment in this time, I would think really hard before I went back to the building. Uh, I was a I was a victim of bullying and harassment and that sort of thing. Uh, because I, I grew up poor and, you know, not having to deal with people asking me why I'm wearing the same pair of jeans I had on yesterday would be wonderful. So, you know, I, I think it's a mixed bag and, you know, many students need to go back, want to go back and have that option. But also many students don't mind, you know, or or the inconveniences of being online are far outweighed by, you know, the trauma that can come from being in some of our schools. And, and I know you probably can't answer this question right now, and you may not be involved in those conversations, but I just wonder, I mean, DPS is a very large school district. Mm-hmm. I wonder if school districts around the country are looking at that trend and trying to dig into why students you know, may not want to come back to face-to-face, and will they continue to offer some sort of online or remote instruction? Because I, I, mean, it's, it, I mean, it is difficult as a teacher, for mm-hmm. some teachers, to do both. Sure. Um, think, it, it's yeah. a big, it's a, it's a big piece to bite off. So I just wonder, I, I mean, I guess I'm wondering out loud or thinking out loud with you, you know, is somebody going to look into this? 
I certainly hope so. Uh, one of the things that as an eternal optimist, I hope that education takes a long, hard look at itself and really comes to grip with some of the institutional practices that we've that that's just how we do school. And, you know, it's kind of like a fish swimming in the water. A fish doesn't know it's in water because it's its environment. Right there. I, this pandemic has provided us a great opportunity to look at how we educate our young people and think about what impacts, you know, the, it's been commonly said, you know, the pandemic has exposed inequities across our educational system. And that's true. And I think if we don't wrestle with that, if we don't really pause and take the time and put in the effort and the work that it takes to, to examine how we have been treating our students and our, and our parents and our caregivers, um, that has caused some of this, that has caused them to choose to remote in and, and choose the hybrid option and that sort of thing. Um, if we don't examine some of those practices, if we don't examine some of the, for example, systemic racism that exists in, in our K-12 environments, uh, we're missing a great opportunity to, 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 um, to change education for the better. Are districts doing that? I think it's a mixed bag. I think DPS, uh, Denver Public Schools is in a weird spot in that, you know, we have an interim superintendent. We're not, we're kind of a rudderless ship right now. We're, we're, and this is something that's been my experience not only here, but in other places too, is large school districts tend to lurch from one crisis to the next and rarely take a contemplative step back and look at, you know, the why and the how of what we're doing. Um, just because, you know, there's so many moving pieces and it's so complex, right? Um, my hope is that all school, all school districts and all principals and all teachers, including librarians, you know, take this opportunity to, to find out what has worked through this pandemic, what has gone well, and to be really honest about you know, the types of inequities that have been exposed and how we can address them. So, you know, I'm hopeful. I'm always optimistic. I wouldn't be an educate in the education business if I weren't an optimist. Um, I think a lot of it is going to come down to leadership and the leadership making um, the making this self-examination a priority. Well, you have just given me a great segue into the next question, because when I asked you to come on mm -hmm. the podcast, I, I, I told you I would really like to have you just talk about this past year yeah. and specifically lessons learned, battles, victories, where you think the profession, and I'm not talking about specifically just the classroom teacher, you know, I'm sure. talking about librarians where things are headed. So you responded with, we're all over the place <laughs> and how we've dealt with the past year. And I, and I have to say, I, I've heard that from many, many, many people mm -hmm. I've spoken with. So, um, but you said, I learned ton of lessons. I learned a ton of lessons and you put ton in upper, all upper <laughs> case. So I know you have a lot, but I'm going to ask you if you want to share, you know, the top three lessons you learned and why you think those are important things to, you know, keep in mind moving forward. Sure. And and this is going to, you know, and, and I'm really glad you typed out the questions and sent them to me ahead of time because <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to help weave some of these things together. The first lesson I think uh, I learned through the pandemic is the importance of laying a foundation and being prepared. And obviously nobody could be prepared for the pandemic. Nobody knew that last March when we went for an extended two week spring break, that that, you know, that that we were seeing the fundamental shift that the pandemic caused for for teaching and learning. Right. And, and for our school libraries, you know, we thought, OK, we'll have a long break. Things will get under control and then we'll come back to school. Well, that didn't happen. Um, so part of that being prepared piece is laying the groundwork for helping the stakeholders that that are surrounding your library program understand the value and importance of the work that the that the school librarian does and that the school library the resources and the environment that the school library provides so when i say that that uh, we're all over the place at dps the folks in our buildings our campus library staff who had done that foundational work, who had a great relationship with their administration, with their parents and caregivers, with their students, um, who were really tightly integrated into the day-to-day -day operations of the school, um, tended to have more successes as a school library person than someone who just managed the library and who kept the doors closed and you know, if they were in the rotation, if they taught students when they were there and went home at the end of the day, and that was kind of what they did, they found themselves kind of adrift without a clear focus of how, how am I going to continue this during the pandemic? And we had folks who 
also were put into some tough situations just because of staffing. Yeah, they had to go, if they're a certified teacher, we had several folks who were put back into the classroom and, you know, virtual, you know, had to, had to teach, you know, second grade or whatever. Uh, We had folks who had to go staff the front front office just because they needed somebody there to answer the phones. Uh, We had folks who were tasked with uh, supporting online instruction. So they had to be, you know, almost like a co-teacher or a paraprofessional in another teacher's virtual classroom. So when I say we were all over the place, you know, we have over 150 campuses. We are all over the place. Um, and, sure. and a big chunk of, I think, the people who were most able to pivot and switch and create a valuable online library experience for their students and teachers and communities were the ones who had done a lot of that foundational work ahead of time. So first lesson, work. Okay, yeah, let yeah, me go ask ahead, you a question. Oh, really please. Quick. Um, so, so you said, no, it's okay. I, I just, I mean, I, I hate to interrupt, but I wanted to ask, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, I, as I mentioned to you, you know, sometimes we're talking and that'll just trigger a, a uh-huh. follow-up question where I want, or I want more information. So when you said that those folks were successful, mm-hmm. the ones who laid that foundation, could you define yes. successful? I mean, was it having everything ready to go online or was there some, I mean, I, I don't know if you have a specific example yeah. of what you thought was successful. And, and I'm really glad you asked that because that, that is a very important question. And what is, what is a successful library program is, is not something that is universally defined. It's, it's a library program that is able to get resources and get information and provide experiences for the students and the families and the staff um, that continue that, that, uh, that march toward literacy, right? So for me, a, a successful school library program is measurable in that I'm a data dork and I'm totally grabbing your stats and I know how many times you've checked out a book. I know how many times your students are accessing our ebook collection. Um, I've put Google Analytics on every single school library's webpage so that I know how many times kids are clicking into databases. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't get more detail than that, but I do know when our resources are being used. And that gives me a hint into someone at that school almost always the, the library staff, but it could be a teacher as well, is promoting our ebooks, our databases, our, our destiny platform for placing holds and getting physical books into kids' hands. So I do believe in measuring success and defining what that is. And for me and for us, it's making sure that the, the resources, the very expensive resources and carefully curated resources that we provide are being used. Uh, you know, I've really been a stickler about if you if they're not using it, then you're not being successful. Have the best library collection in the world, but if nobody's using it, that's that's something to work on. You know, that's an area you need to be successful in. So for me, that that was what I was kind of looking at. You know, before the pandemic and during it, and and long afterward, it's like the numbers don't lie. If people are using what you have, then you are doing a good job of getting them connected with the resources, which I feel like is our primary job, right? Whether it's a prep book, the right book at the right time, as Rudy and Sims Bishop says, you know, the mirrors, windows, sliding glass doors. Um, if you're doing that, that's great. If, I mean, obviously that's super important. Ebooks, databases, any curated materials that you have on your website, all, if people are using them, then that's a win, right? So for me, that's kind of how I, how I approach that level of success. And then of course there's the soft stuff, right? There's the relationships that you're able to build. If you're able to present an awesome information literacy lesson with great student feedback and you know the teachers are able to incorporate that into the work that they're doing, then those things are are, are wins as well. So I mean we all have our strengths. And I think it's important to for us as professionals to define what success looks like and then uh, be able to share that. And that goes back to building those relationships, right? With principals, with uh, caregivers and parents and and with your staff and, and, and students, you know, we want them to feel like they're a part of that success because at the end of the day, they really are. Yeah, I just wonder if the COVID experience is gonna have us sort of expand our definition mm-hmm. of what success looks like from a, libra- from a librarian value. Sure. Um, perspective. So, I mean, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, measuring stuff is great. And I just wonder of the ones that, of the librarians that you saw that were, you know, quote, Mm -hmm. successful, unquote, during the pandemic, you know, what, what, what was that? What was their, I guess, was there a perfect um, mix of the the data and also the relationship stuff that happened during, you know, like I've talked to some librarians who like did things like, um, you know, made little 
packages to go mm-hmm. along with the books that were distributed and things. I mean, just small things like that. So I just wonder, you know, um, and we're going to get right, to this. Right. We're going to segue into this conversation. And so I don't want to get there before we need to, because I want you to finish number two yeah. and number three. But at the same time, I'm just, you're, you're making me really think about um, expanding that Absolutely. definition of what success could look like. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So I, I, do you want to wrap up number one or do you want to? No, I think number one is great is, is build, build that foundation ahead of time and build those relationships, you know, as a natural part of the work that you do. The number two piece is the flexibility. And that's something that we've all had to have a great deal of during throughout the pandemic. And uh, I, we're, we're actually going to have a, a, a meeting on Monday afternoon and we had someone who can't be there, but she pre-recorded some of the work that she's done to get uh, books into students' hands, for example. And a big piece that she kept highlighting, and this is uh, Phoebe at Eagleton Elementary in in DPS. So shout out, Phoebe, you did a great job. Um, She um, tried some things with her students and like book deliveries and and having classes scheduled to make holds and going out and that sort of thing. And it worked for younger students, but didn't work for older students for her, her, her fourth and fifth graders. So she pivoted, she changed it. She made it a little bit more wide open where students could place things on hold at their leisure. And she would just make a special trip to their classroom to drop books off and that sort of thing. So that's one example, right. Of being flexible and being willing to try something. And uh, one of my old uh, colleagues, and, and I'll call him old because I hope he listens to this, Don Wolf, who's now the chief information officer <laughs> at Portland Public Schools, uh, used the phrase, you know, fail quickly. And I think that that is a wonderful thing to think about because, A, you're embracing the possibility of failure, which a lot of times teachers and librarians, as the perfectionists that we are, we were hesitant to fail. Um, but he believes in failing and failing quickly. Try something. If it doesn't work, drop it and try something different. Uh, and don't stick with something just because it's the way we've always done things or it's the way I think it should look. Because a lot of times it's our students and our parents and our caregivers and our staff who determine what their needs are. They know their needs better than we do. And our job is to pivot and be flexible and sometimes bend over backwards, literally and figuratively, right, to meet those needs. So I think, um, you know, Phoebe's example at Eagleton is a great one for us to keep in mind. It's like, Try it, but be flexible and be willing to let it go if it's not working. And uh, she's been she's done a great job. I mean, I've provided some tips and some things that uh, our Destiny software can do to help people. Um, but um, the most successful library staff at our buildings have just taken those ideas and run with them and made them work for their schools. They haven't they haven't done exactly what I what I recommended, which is great. Uh, you know that that's just a starting point. Um, but the folks who have done the best work in terms of getting and let's take the example of getting books into students' hands, physical print, dead tree books, as I like to call them, um, into kids' <laughs> hands, you know, because, you know, we know about screen time and we know kids need to get, get away from the screen and all of us are developing Zoom headaches and that sort of thing. So um, if you take that as a metric of success, the folks who have been the most flexible and the most outward facing have been the ones who have been the most successful. So there you go. Build your foundation. Be flexible. Right. Right. Third thing is mm-hmm. you've got to continually stretch and learn. And for me, the, 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 the PLN that I have, the professional learning network that I have through social media, most dominantly Twitter, has helped me keep perspective um, because it's really easy to just look at my school or my district or even my state and kind of think that that's, that's all that's going on. But when, you, when you're willing to reach out and ask questions, not, and also willing to hear different perspectives, um, you get some great ideas. And I, you know, it's it's kind of an old trope at this point that social media is a really good professional learning tool. I would say that it is with some caveats because you have to curate your newsfeed. Um, I absolutely unfollow people all the time if I see that they are, you know, just super negative or they're always complaining or you know, um, all they share are horror stories about being in education. And there's plenty of those. And I've been doing this for 23 years. I know what the horror stories are and they're the same as they were 20 years ago. So, uh, I've carefully curate my feed so that I'm not, um, inundated with too much negativity. Uh, I curate my feed. So I'm not inundated with too much politics. You know, politics is generally always bad news. So there's very little of that that I want to see in that, in that place. Then you must have taken. Well, you know, I didn't want to say anything on the podcast, but (laughs) um, 
no, and, and, and there's a healthy dose of it, you know, and I think that part of the, sure. and part of our information literacy work that we should do is not only curate our own feeds, but also teach our teachers and students to have some control and to exercise, you know, their agency when it comes to the kind of stuff that you see because of algorithms is directly, is directly related to the searches that you conduct, the people that you follow, the content that you post. Um, if you want to see less politics, don't follow politicians. Don't follow people who that's all they talk about. Because if you're if your entire life is talking about politics, it's kind of sad. Um, there's a lot more going on in the universe than politics. And if we can get away from some of that divisiveness and really focus on learning uh, from our social media channels and really focus on exploring and and um, focus on on as much as we can on on positive people and positive messaging, I think it helps. And Speaking of curating your social media feeds, one of the things I'll, I'll encourage, especially school librarians, because we are an overwhelmingly white profession uh, and school librarians specifically, too, are overwhelmingly female. It's really important to diversify the educators that you follow. And I made a concerted effort last year, um, especially around the George Floyd and, and uh, Breonna Taylor situations to follow more black educators and that experience has opened my eyes so wide into their unique perspectives and their unique experiences. And uh, there's a lot of struggle, but there's also a lot of joy and a lot of humor. And I cannot, I cannot recommend highly enough diversifying your, your social media um, uh, follow list so that you're getting those perspectives from, from people that have been marginalized for way too long. So yeah. let's talk about that a little bit. Um, are there some individuals you'd like to promote? Oh my right gosh, now? you're putting me on the spot. That, uh, case, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's okay. Yeah. You don't have to answer now because we're going to do a yes. resource companion, and I would love to yeah. add people to that. But if there's somebody like right off the yeah. bat that you want to mention, if you're I not think following Casey Boyd out of uh, the DC public schools, uh, it's the letter K, the letter C, Boyd, B-O-Y-D. Uh, I recommend dropping everything and following her right away. And then one of the th one of the tricks that, um, and she's the first person I could think of, Tamiko Brown uh, down in Texas is, is wonderful. She was school librarian of the year a couple of years ago. Um, she's amazing. Um, and, and then when you, when you follow someone who has um, that, that, that different perspective, one of the things I would do also is take a look at their follow list. Who are they following? Who are they retweeting? And that's a way to organically grow, you know, your, your, um, your Twitter experience or Instagram experience, whatever channel you, you choose to use for, for your professional learning. Um, I pay attention to who gets retweeted. Um, I pay attention to, uh, the types of messaging that they're sharing. And also, um, that that's led me down, the path of following a lot of black authors. Unfortunately, we don't have enough black librarians. We need to do a better job as a profession of encouraging and supporting uh, all people of color, not, not, not just black folks, but all people of color uh, to consider librarianship as a profession because um, um, it's, 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 it's awesome. It's the best job in the world. Um, but yeah, I, if I could give you two Tamiko and Casey would be a great place to start. And, and like okay. I said, there are others and I'm, I'm, feel horrible that, that I'm blanking on them, but okay. We'll make a list. No, I don't. I mean, I'm sure they're new. We'll make a list. That's what we do. We're librarians. We're we'll follow we're up. Listeners. We'll make a list and we'll share it with everybody. <laughs> um, so let me ask you also, so in your, in your work this year on your PLN, you know, paring it down and, yeah. and probably stretching it, is there some like, and, and this might be putting you in the uh, okay that. that's fine if you don't have an answer, but <laughs> I told you yeah, that I wouldn't always stick fine. to the questions that I sent you. <laughs> um, is there is there a nugget or a gem or something you learned from the PLN that was specific to helping you maybe get through this year or an idea that you shared with, you know, others? I'm just curious if there was something that really, you know, like hit you this year. One of year. the things, yeah, we did a, uh, so I'm, I'm one of the advisors for Future Ready Librarians. Um, one of the things that we did mm -hmm. at a summit a couple of months ago is we had folks doing exactly that, right? They're sharing the things that are helping them be successful through the pandemic and how they are providing rich, you know, library and literacy experiences remotely and that sort of thing. So I have a colleague up in Oregon who her deal and the thing that, that her community really wanted because she's on the coast and, um, and, uh, 
is they're a little bit isolated on the Oregon coast. They're kind of far away from everything. Uh, they, their students and families wanted to have uh, virtual field trips. So that was her jam. She got with um, a buddy and they started going out and filming things and either posting things live on social media or recording and then posting later if they didn't have bandwidth. Um, but one of the, one of my takeaways from that, I mean, that's a cool idea and it's very neat, especially if your community needs that. But one of the things that, that happened after that in our breakout rooms and in our conversations and on social media is a lot of people wanted to do that exact thing for their school. And they missed a step, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't ask their students and their families and their mm-hmm. caregivers and their teachers you know, what content would be awesome? What would you really like to see? They just jumped right into adopting that idea without taking that step. So my big takeaway from that is, is yeah, great ideas are great, but also run it through the filter a little bit and ask your stakeholders, ask the people that you serve, is this something that would be valuable to you? Because I feel like a lot of times we spend time and effort and energy creating things that nobody asks for. And at the end of the day, they may not want. Uh, and it may not be useful for them. So that was my big, like it took, and, and I'm, and I'm totally, I've been doing this for years. You know, I build these great lists and pathfinders and websites and uh, all these data sets and stuff. And, and is there really a need for that? So I've done that, you know, thousands of times. It's like stepped over getting with my community and asking, you know, how can I help you? Uh, yeah, it seems like it seems like a great yeah. collaboration opportunity with teachers too. Before uh-huh. you just jumped in and did it, you know, if there was yep. some content specifically that they needed, and so I mean, I'm always right. looking for angles to approach teachers to say, "How can I work with you? How can I help you?" Before uh-huh. I go out and do the virtual field trip, right? Do what do you need? What students? What do you struggle to teach? And and uh, I used mm-hmm. to do this with my baby teachers. Um, uh, one of my one of my best collaboration hacks was to volunteer to teach the new new teachers to our school or our district or new to the profession, how to use the grade book, how to use our learning management systems and all that junk. And this is when I was a campus librarian, right? So I would get new teachers typically got a couple of days of staff development before everybody else came back for the school year. And while I had those new teachers there, uh, I would teach them the basics, teach them everything they need to know, but I would also teach them how to reserve the library, how to contact, how to get, how to request, you know, materials for, um, uh, to support their class. And I would kind of give them a tour of the, of the physical space and the digital resources that we had. And a big chunk of that was, you know, you're going to need at some point during the year, you're going to get stuck and everybody does it. Even if you've been teaching for 20 years, you're, you're going to get to a unit or lesson that you're not sure how to, how to present. And that's where your school librarian can come in and, and be a really good resource for providing a different perspective and connecting with students in a different way, maybe through media, maybe through uh, an escape room. I mean, who knows what that could look like, right? And and just know that I'm here to support you. And it goes back to that relationship building piece, right? Which is what we talked about at the beginning. If you take the time to listen more and talk less, there's a, there's a lot of possibility that comes from that. And teachers have a lot to say. And, and part, of the, part of the struggle of working and collaborating with teachers is a lot of times teachers don't feel like they get to say very much uh, to other adults. You know, they're talking in front of their students all day, but they don't always get to share what they're struggling with and where they need help. And because they don't have that opportunity very often to do that, I feel like a lot of times, you know, it, it, it's like exercising a muscle. That muscle atrophies a little bit. So creating space and, and a place and, and structures for, for collaboration to take place is a lot of listening. It's a lot of just in general, how can I help? And, you know, don't limit it to what books do you need? Limit it to just what's where's your struggle and how can I help? So I don't know if that actually answers your question. I kind of rambled a little bit, but it all comes down to relationships. No, you did. Yeah. And you made and you- well, and you and you made me. Uh, I'm trying to think of the right word to say. <laughs> Bring I don't it on. Be negative, <laughs> but it just it's it's fr- it's frustrating that baby teachers aren't taught right. in their programs that of course you should be talking right. to your teacher librarian, yeah. right? Like you know, if don't you're not adrift, and there is a resource in your building that can mm-hmm. help you and guide you, and think of resources you haven't even thought of. But I always go back to like, I wonder what they're being yeah. taught in their programs that leave it's, us it, out of the equation. It's not just them, right? It's administrator preparation programs too. Uh, school administrators aren't taught, yeah. you know, anything about the library program. And in very limited instances, have they even, you know, have they even heard of a school librarian? And 
And that's part of our ongoing struggle as a profession, right? Is because as teachers gain experience and, and get really good at their work and move on into administrative roles or curriculum development roles or district level roles, so many of them have not had that experience of collaborating freely and openly with a school librarian or even with each other. You know, a lot of a lot of schools uh, many years ago went yeah. into uh, kind of a team's approach, which I think is a great one where you have cross-curricular teams, you know, grade level teams and that sort of thing. I think that that can create opportunities for collaboration. I think a lot of times those devolve into data digs and discipline conferences and that sort of thing. So they're not true, you know, they're not really changing instruction. They're just kind of meeting, you know, once a week or once a day or whatever it might be um, to kind of rehash problems. So, yeah, I think collaboration is one of those is one of those skill sets that it's often talked about, but it's rarely ever explicitly taught. And that goes down to not only the undergrad teacher preparation programs, but also administrative preparation programs. And even in our schools, you know, uh, the dreaded group project, you know, is is assigned, but then how to work with a group and how to resolve conflict and how to communicate and how to delegate and how to manage materials and that sort of thing uh, is never explicitly taught. And the reason it's not taught is because it's not tested. You know, if that stuff isn't on a standardized test, it mm -hmm. gets pushed to the periphery. And education because of that is, is very much become a, a solo isolated, you know, I take in the facts, I process the facts, I regurgitate the facts on the test and I move on. Uh, type of experience. So again, this goes back to what we were talking about before, right? If we fundamentally shift the way we do teaching and learning and the way we do school, part of those quote unquote, and I don't like this term, soft skills of collaboration, communication, that sort of thing. That's what employers look for. That's what I want to work with people who know how to collaborate. Um, you know, so we need to really look at that and, and decide if we want to generate good little test takers or if we want to generate good human beings. Well, and also I think oh, yeah. it's important to know when to yeah. collaborate, right? Like it, I mean, a lot of times collaboration is kind of just done because you yep. want to say I've done something. Tick in a box. Yep. I have to <laughs> check that box. Sometimes, sometimes it, it isn't, a, it's, it's knowing when to do it. When do you pull in other people? When do you have a challenge you're facing where you need mm -hmm. additional help and resources and expertise? Yeah. So I, I, I agree with you. I think that's super important. And I think, you know, I think you're right. I, I think until we see some shifts at the mm -hmm. the level of the program for teachers and administrators, it's, you know, it's, it's always going to be a part of our profession to keep, you know, um, sure. explaining that value. And I wonder too, if maybe, I wonder if the push right now, push is probably not the right word either, but the, um, the, the immediacy around needing to understand the importance of media right. literacy, information literacy might be something that, puts a librarian in front of folks who I are hope in these so. programs, right? Yeah, maybe, yeah, I mean, maybe that's and, a And <laughs> I'm really hopeful. I mean, our, our legislature has done some work around setting up some media literacy and, and, and has done some good things here in Colorado. And I'm hoping that other lawmakers, and that, that, that happens a lot of times, is a state will do something and then other lawmakers from our surrounding states will take notice and, and make a concerted effort toward that piece. And I think that that you're right. I'm, I feel like information and media literacy has always been vital. It's always been important. And now more than ever, just because we've seen some of the horrendous, you know, results of of the inability to filter messaging and the inability to think critically about information. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that that, that, that there's an opportunity. Uh, my good friend Mark Ray up in the Pacific Northwest calls it a chopportunity. A challenge and an opportunity. Okay, yes, good. I interviewed good. Mark. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's, that was I think so. I I, maybe that's what made me think of it. I don't know. But yeah, I love that term, <laughs> opportunity, because, because yeah, it, it goes back to that, op, that, that uh, optimistic uh, lens in which we view all of the stuff that we struggle against. And yeah, getting the right, getting in front of the right people at the right time with the right message is super important. One of the best things I did when I was um, when I worked at the Texas State Library and Archives Commission was uh, I I had a, a professor in the University of Texas um, uh, master's program uh, just contacted me and said, hey, can you come talk to my class? 
And these were baby librarians. These were teachers who were in the school library certification program. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And it became a deal where I went in every semester and just spent a whole evening with them, a couple hours. And they just asked questions and kind of like what we're doing now. We just had a conversation. I had a few things that I would that, that I had planned ahead of time to, to share with them. But the vast majority was just what's it really like? And uh, we talked a lot about collaboration. We talked a lot about being willing to do you know, the mental and, and sometimes physical gymnastics that's required to, <laughs> to create that, that, that space um, where teachers and administrators and community members, uh, parents and caregivers feel comfortable uh, approaching the librarian. Uh, a lot of times we have this stereotype, you know, the Madam Pence types from the Harry Potter series, you know, we have a stereotype of, of being a little bit, um, being a little bit unapproachable, a little cold and a little difficult to work with. And, Exactly. Yeah. Reserved, we want to just reserved. close the door and sit behind our circulation <laughs> desk and shush people, um, which, you know, I obviously don't e ever advocate for. But um, all those stereotypes have a grain of reality. And unfortunately, we've had a lot of folks in our profession that have been upholding that stereotype. And for some people, that's why they got into it, because they are control freaks and they want to have absolute total dominance over a space and the pe people within that space. And that just shuts down those opportunities for collaboration. So, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's a big it's a big hairy uh, ball to untangle, but it's that's where the work really sits: is building relationships, building foundations, building collaborative opportunities, and then making the most of them. Because when when I work with a teacher, the best outcome I can experience is that teacher going and telling all their friends, "Oh my gosh, you need to work with the librarian. You would not believe how great this experience was." It was easy. It was fun. My kids got so much out of it. You know, I want that. I want that organic, you know, word of mouth um, to to spread throughout my my school or district or what, whatever situation I find myself. And that's the best compliment I can get is somebody else saying, you know, this is such a great experience. You need to do this. Um, and that goes to advocacy, too. Right. Our best advocates are the teachers and parents and administrators that we work with. You know, when we advocate for ourselves and library programs, that's a little icky, it's a little self-serving. It's really powerful to have others who have experienced firsthand a great school library program and some of the work that we do speak up on our behalf. And not just when there's a crisis, but all the time. And just share it with their friends, share it with their quilting club, whatever it might be, you know, that, that this school library is doing some cool stuff. I, I wish you could see me because I'm just sitting here nodding. Yes, 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 yes. I, I agree with you that the advocacy coming mm -hmm. from the colleagues that you work with is just, yeah. it's, it's in advertising, you know, word of mouth is like the most important thing. A positive word of mouth can be the most important thing. But I will say that I don't think, um, oh, yeah. I think you can toot right. your own horn if you can back it up, right? And I, and I think a lot of librarians um, rely only mm. on their colleagues talking about them. But if you've done something and it's really had an impact, yeah. um, you know, it is collecting right. the data like you have suggested and it's putting out the information about that. I know that you tweeted recently about um, some, mm -hmm. some stats you ran for DPS during this time. And I think that, I, I just think that librarians sometimes, and maybe teachers too, they just don't feel like they can toot their own horn. And, and you know, yeah. I think if you can back it up and um, it's important to have that mix of both things. You know, if we're too retiring and we're too reserved and we don't do that, then I also think sometimes that plays into the idea mm -hmm. that, you know, librarians are meek and quiet and <laughs> yeah, and, so and, I, I yeah and that's and, and that's not to say that we don't toot our own horns. And I think that that's where having a strong social media presence can be helpful. I think that's where having an outstanding mm -hmm. online presence, especially now, you know, if your school library website is just a destiny landing page, you miss you missed an opportunity because that is that is gold for curating. And whether you're using, you know, Flipgrid or Wakelet or Destiny Collections or or even something as simple as like a Google Doc that you update or a s'more that you send out every once in a while. You know, how we present ourselves um, and, like you said, toot our horns, you know, with the things that we do and, and create for our students and, and teachers um, has a direct impact on the level of support that we get. And you're right. It, it's a balance. You've got to toot your own horn and you have to have people do it on your behalf um, and not just... And, and, and I can't emphasize this enough, not just when there's a problem, not just when it's like 
we're in the spring yeah. now, we're kind of past it now, but you know, we were in budget season, you know, a couple months ago and you can't wait until January to start sharing the good work that you're doing. It's got to become part of your daily routine. Uh, it's got to become part of your daily workflow in curating relationships and, and getting to know the right people and the, and the people who hold purse strings and the influencers in your community throughout the year and not waiting until there's a problem to start advocating and writing letters to the editor and that sort of thing. If, if you're waiting to budget season to do that, it's too late. You know, people need to have positive feelings all year round. <laughs> I, yeah, be more. Absolutely. Well, and you got to be proactive about it. And I think that, I think with when mm-hmm. there's a lot happening and there's a lot going on, it's easy to sort of push that down the priority list. But if you've got done something and it's been impactful and it's helped and your colleagues yes. are talking about it, I think yeah. you should be able to also chime in as well. <laughs> okay, okay. So we jumped ahead and we talked about advocacy, but that's fine. Um, I, I, that was, you know, like I said, these conversations, mm-hmm. they just kind of go where they go sometimes. But I do want to ask you about, um, and, and I'm not, I'm not even <laughs> sure what question I was asking. Yeah, we'll figure so maybe it out. You know, <laughs> but you know, yeah, we've heard a lot um, this year mm-hmm. or lately right. about the lost year for students. Um, Time Magazine has done an article. I've seen a lot of posts about it on Twitter. I've seen other um, articles, you know, and people have very different, sure. ish, you know, uh, opinions about this. So I don't want to debate students lost year, but I'm curious if you think the librarians have experienced a lost year. I specifically am talking about um, the folks that I've heard about who have, you know, been reassigned or um, don't know if it's going to continue mm-hmm. or principals might be taking this opportunity to eliminate the position because right. they don't know what's going to happen with the budget. Um, I, I, I mean, there's mm-hmm. been so many things. I mean, even you mentioned at the beginning of this, all the different things people were asked to do. So I wonder, did, did, has it been a lost year for librarians or is there a way for, um, is the value can the value be recovered if it was lost? And so I guess the first question is, do you just really I think if, 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 and this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, right? If the groundwork has not been laid and the work has not been done ahead of time to show the value of the library program and the librarian position, then it could have been, especially if someone has been reassigned to doing something that has nothing to do with the library. The library has sat neglected for a year and students have not been getting uh, access to resources and have not been having those learning experiences. And I think it could be. Um, however, be, again, being the eternal optimist that I am, I think it's been like for the rest of the world, it's been a year to um, evaluate where we are and what we're doing and, and the impacts that it has and doesn't have. Um, it's been a year to uh learn some new skills. If you're having to do a lot of tech troubleshooting and maybe you weren't the most techie librarian in the history of the world before that, maybe you've gotten really, really solid with, you know, screencasting or whatever the the tech issues are. Um, So again, being the eternal optimist that I am, I I would never consider it a lost year. Uh, Not only is it not a lost year for our students or families or schools, but it also hasn't been a lost year for librarians. It's been a challenging year. There's no doubt. That, um, but I think that those who built strong foundations have been able to be flexible and have pivoted and have also connected strongly with their PLN, not just for ideas for what they can do with the library, but also for just that really important emotional support. Um, I think it's going to have a mixed bag of impacts, and it's really going to come down to who you are as a person, how your personality is kind of wired, and how you do your work. Um, so no, I would never categorize it as a lost year. I think it's been, uh, I think we've lost some opportunities. Um, you know, I think that that we we as, a, as an industry did not take advantage of the summer the way we should have before the school year. I think so many districts and so many states and that sort of thing were hoping so fervently that they could start school in person and figuring out what that looks like, that they neglected to optimize the online school experience. Um, and I think that's true for libraries as well, right? We we were pushing so hard, you know, and digging into the Realm project data for how long do we need to quarantine library books that we didn't spend that time working on our school library web, web, websites, for example. Uh, we didn't we didn't take the opportunity to, to learn about uh, how the existing things that we had uh, both physical and digital could be put into kids' hands. Um, so, yeah, it, it's not a lost year. It's, it's a bunch of lost opportunities. But I think a lot of people took advantage of 
the ease with which you can attend conferences, for example. I went to more, you know, education and library conferences and learning events this past spring, summer and fall than I had ever done before, just because I could do it virtually. And a lot of times it was at a free or almost no cost. So if you didn't learn something this year, if you didn't, you know, gain a new skill. Um, and I know the pandemic's been hard on people and it's hard to, to do more than what's ba basically barely necessary to survive. Um, I think that was a missed opportunity too. Um, but for, for current teacher librarians, I mean, it's almost a survival of the fittest type thing. And I hate to say that because, you know, it seems very brutal, but you know, if you, if you haven't been evolving your practice and you haven't been actively learning and, and getting a little bit better every day, then this pandemic may have, and I think that's going to be true for a lot of educators, right? The pandemic's going to force a lot of folks to reconsider if this is a career for them. Um, and it's, and with that comes a lot of opportunity, you know, with people moving out, there's going to be room for new voices and hopefully more diverse voices and, um, you know, different types of personalities coming into librarianship. I mean, we have a lot of places that are eliminating, uh, eliminating positions and, and that's just, that's been the reality ever since I've entered the profession, you know, over a decade ago, it's like people cut librarians all the time. Um, but that comes down to, you know, decisions that are oftentimes out of our control. So again, I'm both op optimistic and I'm also a little, you know, a little disheartened that we didn't do a better job of, of, of uh, grasping this opportunity and doing something with it. But, yeah. uh -oh. I, I, maybe your ears were burning during the summer because I was sitting here, you know, like yelling at my <laughs> television and yelling at my screen, you know, yeah. what is happening this summer? I mean, yeah. I was I was of the same opinion. I, I mean, I know that it was hard because, mm -hmm. you know, things closed down and right. then everything was kind of like we didn't know it was happening. But it just seemed like there was a professional learning opportunity right. in, in some form to p help people prepare for the possibility yeah. that things right. were not going to go back to normal in August, late August. And so I agree with you. That was that was frustrating. And mm -hmm. I guess that comes from being yeah. inside the sausage factory a little bit like, you know, it's hard to, sure. it's hard to get people together. Um, some administrators, you know, yeah. do more training than they do professional learning. You know what I mean? Like I understand that you're, you sometimes you're fighting an uphill battle with that, but I agree with you. I was, I was a little concerned about, yeah. about that, to, you know, about that as well. So, um, okay. Um, and you are, you are Thanks. an internal optimist Thanks. and I love that. <laughs> That's why that's why I wanted to have you come on because sometimes I get And a I do too, you know, no nobody is nobody is 100% right. one way or the other yeah. and I oftentimes get down and and that sort of thing, but I think that that again focusing on, you know, those opportunities and focusing on moving forward and and not and that's something too that that it, it has its benefits and its drawbacks, you know, I'm not big on looking backward. Um I reflect a little bit on things, especially if if things didn't go well, but, but I'm not big on, I'm not big on just li living in the past. And I do try to look forward and, and think of what's next and how can I best be prepared for what's next and how can I best have an impact uh, for my, for my students and my teachers. So yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a mindset more than anything else, I guess. <laughs> Well, I mean, I do. I think there's mm. a difference between reflection versus reaction, yeah. right? You know, and I think, yeah, so that's, you know, and I, I you know, yeah. there's, there's a lot of rehashing that goes on, but I think reflection is a good thing if it's thoughtful and purposeful and, and you're not, you know, you're <laughs> looking at, you know, how can I make it better or, right. you know, lessons learned, which is where we started. So this has well, been thanks. an amazing <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I want to give you sure. a moment here because I have this platform. Is there anything that you want to, um, you know, talk about, I mean, promote, I mean, I know you've got, um, uh, you've been doing some work for the foundation, uh, library. Sure. Foundation yeah. Center. So ALA, the, um, do you want to talk we've about been doing, uh, a a ASL reached out to me, uh, actually right after I started in Denver about two years ago, uh, almost three years now, uh, to, write a book in a series of the shared foundations from the, from the ASL national standards. So um, they needed someone, they needed a sucker, I guess, to write the curate book. Uh, they'd asked everybody and they got to the bottom <laughs> of the list. So there are books out on inquire, include, uh, collaborate, explore, and engage. And then my book, I think is the last one that's coming out. And I'm going to say it's the last one because it's the hardest one to write. Um, just 
it's probably not, but I'm just going to say that. And I'll, um, but no, I, I started working <laughs> on that book. Um, it is uh, now in the hands of a co-author. Um, so she is going to put the final touches on it. And I don't know what the publication date is. The final publication date is going to be, but it'll be part of a series. We're hoping that um, uh School library and preparation programs uh, use all six books in this series, as well as the, the ASL standards um, in their instruction. And, and I know a lot of professors have been excited to, to have some concrete examples of what uh, curation looks like in the school library. Um, and I touched on this a little bit. You know, I talked about um, curating relationships. I think if we build relationships as carefully as we build our collections, we'll be in a really good place. Um, if we take time to put put in the work of uh, of reaching out and getting outside of our library and attending department meetings, going to grade level meetings, um, working with our administrators, you know, uh, in the evenings and during the summer and and whenever those opportunities come up, serving on leadership teams, on technology committees, and that sort of thing. Um, if we put put the effort into curating those relationships, and and, and that's a theme that's woven throughout this book, right? is yeah, curation is collection development, but it's also so much more. Um, so yeah, that's coming out. Uh, I've been working with Future Ready. So we, we uh, Shannon and Mark, uh, Shannon Miller and uh, Mark Ray have, you know, ha asked me to contribute to those when we have summits and that sort of thing. Uh, I have professional development stuff that uh, folks will ask me to do occasionally. A lot of it is around advocacy and data. I've really gotten into being kind of the data dork uh, for, for, for our, our district in terms of, you know, finding the right numbers and finding the right stories and then also crafting them in a way where, uh, people are ready to hear them and see them and, and, and using that information to tell stories. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that kind of stuff is going on future plans. I've got things going on. That's crazy. We're going to be, uh, I'm actually appearing at the Texas Library Association uh, School Administrators Conference. They have a one day of their library conferences dedicated to school administrators. So I'm, I'm serving on a panel on April 22nd. That'll be in a week um, on uh, the importance of planning for school library re renovations and budgeting. Um, and again, the audience for this uh, is principals, superintendents, assistant superintendents, curriculum directors, folks like that. So yeah, that's kind of that's what's going on. But yeah, I always have future plans. There's always stuff in the works. Well, I, I wanted to tell you that um, I went to the ALA store and the Curate book is is attentively looks like they have a winter 2021 right. release date. So, well, I mean, I, I know things can change, but that's what I saw. Um, I also would not call you a diva. I've been called a lot of things, diva. but never a diva. Um, and I will own that. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, and I have. And I have to say the Texas Library Association conference I got to go to, I think it was uh, maybe two years ago. Yeah. And I always wanted right. to go. Um, right. There's always TCEA and then there's Texas Library Association. And I have to tell you that uh -huh. I, I saw that they had that track or that day yeah. for administrators. And I thought that was amazing. Um, but I just want to say that um, that Texas Library Association meeting was amazing because you get there yes. and it's literally thousands of people. Um, I mean, it right. isn't, you know, sometimes you go to your own state library things and, and if your state isn't, I don't know, I, I, as heavily invested or, or I don't know, yeah. I just, I think they, Texas yeah. has done a great job. Um, it's huge and they bring in great speakers and there's a lot of great presentations. And so if you're looking for a state library association meeting to go mm -hmm. to, um, I, like I said, I was in Colorado and yeah. we made the trip down there and I thought it was definitely worth it. Um, and again, that the, the administrator track, they did, kind of you know, they, they started that. I don't know do exactly where they started that, but um, I was at the state library when it was kind of getting off the ground and we always had our state librarian, uh, address the administrators and then they asked me to speak to them too. So I got, I, I kind of got involved with that early on and I've kind of stuck with it because that's, to me, that's, that's so cool that um, typically the administrators get invited to the conference by their campus librarian. Uh, it's free for them to attend. They can attend the entire conference for free. Um, they get to go to the keynotes. I think Matthew McConaughey is, is one of the keynotes this year. Uh, they get to hear some of these great authors speak. Um, you know, yeah, T TLA is a, outstanding professional organization. Uh, the conference is second only to ALA in terms of size. Uh, their attendance is between seven and 10,000 every mm -hmm. year. 
So that's a lot of librarians and they descend upon cities. It rotates between, you know, Houston, San Antonio, Austin and Dallas, Fort Worth um, each year. Uh, this year it's virtual, so it, it, it doesn't exist in the city, but it is. Um, but in a typical year, that's what they do. And it's it's a blast. The TLA is always the highlight of my year when I was in Texas. And um, again, I'm excited to get to go. So, yeah, it's a. Yeah, well, good on you. And please all tweet right, out if right, Matthew McConaughey right, yeah. starts with all right. All right Absolutely. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has yeah, been so much you. fun. Thank you for taking the time. I will build, yes. I will I will add, I mean, you and I will connect after this call, but um, we'll add some Twitter handles for some folks that people might want to add to their PLN. We'll make sure we um, put in some dates and stuff for the other things you've got going on into the Perfect. companion, um, the resource companion that I put together for this. Um, but again, I really thank you for your time. This has been so great. And when I hope we can run into each other and we can again be out in, in the future awesome. soon-ish. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for yeah, the that. Yeah, that would be great. Really Len, thanks it. so much for your time. Okay, thanks. thanks.